Father God, thank you very much for the chance to be at this conference. Um, thank you for what we're learning about, uh, about agriculture and how it pertains to your work. Um, thank you for all the resources that we have available here and all the, the information that you have provided through AdAgra. Be with us now as we study another topic. I pray that it will glorify you and what we discuss. And um, I just pray that we would all seek your will and what we do in Jesus' name. Amen. What I'm going to share today is a system that we've implemented for various reasons that I was able to learn about um, a couple of years ago now, just about two years ago. And um, I think it aligns with the, the, the natural systems that God's put in place, um, or I wouldn't be here telling you about it. And I think it, it will help alleviate some problems that... Um, that, that we might have with some other systems. So I'll let you guys decide. And um, I called it minimum till for problem solving and sustainability. Now, I almost didn't put that word sustainability on there. It's kind of a cliche-ish word lately. And I, I tend to not like that. So let me define what I'm getting at. So the definition here, one of the definitions of the word sustainability means able to be maintained. And what we encountered on our farm was it was difficult to maintain a system. Um, well, the first year we started, we, we tilled everything up and picked rocks and cleared brush, and, and then we planted seeds and we irrigated with rainbird irrigation. And we grew a lot of weeds that year. And <laughs> we couldn't keep up with it. We, it didn't matter how many students and how much time, it, we couldn't keep up with it. And of course, you know, a lot of students had never weeded before, so they might not get very far in the amount of time that we had. And so no, no matter how much training we had, it wasn't sustainable. It wasn't able to be maintained. And so we've implemented drip irrigation. And I, I started looking for other systems that would function and still align with the, the systems that God put in place. So that's why I use that word. So forgive me. This is, this is a neat story uh, from the, the pre-Avondale days, and I'll just read it here for you guys. Um, the Creator's interested in us knowing the science of the soil, I believe, and, and I think this represents that. Before I visited Kornbong, the Lord gave me a dream. In my dream, I was taken to the land that was for sale in Kornbong, and I'm probably saying that wrong if there's any Aussies here, I'm sorry. Um, in my dream, I was taken, excuse me, several of our brethren had been solicited to visit the land, and I dreamed that I was walking upon the ground. I came to a neat cut furrow that had been plowed one quarter of a yard deep and two, thar two, thirds, two yards in length. I'm sorry. Two of the brethren who had been acquainted with the rich soil of Iowa were standing before this furrow and saying, this is not good land. This soil is not favorable. And I'll come back to that in a minute. But one who has often, now one is capitalized here, one who has often spoken in council was present also and he said, false witness has been born of this land. Then he described the properties of the different layers of the earth. He explained the science of the soil and said that this land was adapted to the growth of fruit and vegetables and that if well worked, it would produce its treasures for the benefit of man. This dream I related to brother and sister Star and my family. The next day, we were on the cars on our way to meet the others who were investigating the land. And as I, I was afterward walking on the ground where the trees had been removed, lo, there was a furrow, just as I had described it, and the men also who had criticized the appearance of the land. And the words were spoken, just as I had dreamed. And then it goes on to tell how she told them of this dream and said, no, no, I think we have it wrong. This, will, this land will be functional. Now, incidentally, I grew up in northeast Iowa on a corn and soybean farm. And um, the dirt in Iowa is black. And I'm not kidding, it's black black. And here in Oregon, the soil in like in the Willamette Valley is very good. Down at Milo where we're at, there's a lot of clay and it's a river bottom area. So there's a lot of rocks and it's extremely um, patchy. It, it's in zones and, and you can't depend on 10 feet over from, from the spot you're standing on to, to grow the same as it does here. And people say, oh, this is such good land. And I'm thinking, 
you haven't seen Iowa soil. Um, so I'm, I probably would have said something like this. And, but anyway, the, the creator is interested in the science of the soil. He created the science of the soil, right? Um, so <clears throat> you guys have probably heard we need to plow often and deep. And I'm not here to, to create a, a controversy or get into that too deeply. But um, that's a, in Christ's Object Lessons, please read the whole book. Um, it's a wonderful book. And, uh, but, but that's the quote that's, that's often brought up when we talk about no-till or minimum-till systems. Um, I, I personally believe that what I'm going to describe aligns okay with that because um, I don't know if you, you guys had the opportunity to listen to the Die Singers on the first day or the second day on Wednesday, um, but they talked about using broad forks. And this system incorporates the use of broad forks, and so you are getting the, the soil loosened to a, a reasonable depth. Um, you're just not turning the soil, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But I actually put this in after the meeting this morning. This is the quote, if you remember, in our meeting this morning. Ellen White said, this is how it is, and my mind has been greatly stirred in regard to the idea, quote, why Sister White has said so-and-so, and Sister White has said so-and-so, and therefore we are going right up to it. In other words, copying it exactly without question. She says, God wants us all to have common sense and he wants us to reason from common sense. Um, circumstances alter conditions. Circumstances change the relation of things. So she says, think about it. Understand the context, obviously, um, which is what I wrote here next. Pray and study for yourself. Understand the context of what, what was written in Christ's object lessons. Most importantly, I want you guys all to seek and follow the Creator's will for you and His leading on your heart. Don't take what I say for granted. Um, make sure you feel like God is, is, is either leading you to consider this or not before you just go into it. What it is not, it is not turning over or inverting the natural layers of the soil. Um, if you guys have studied soil science, we know that there's, there's different strata that are important in the biology of the soil. And um, I'll make a, a book recommendation a little bit later, but that's something you can, you, you, you can readily learn about in fairly easily understood layman's terms. Um, it is not no-till in its pure sense, because again, I said, for the most part, you, you aerate the soil with a broad fork. Um, it's not the method popularly, popularly known as the back to Eden method or the chip method. Um, and that has worked for some people, and the gentleman that came up with it is a, is a very good Christian man, I believe. But if, if, um, if you talk to Michael Trevisio or Whitmar McConnell, they've, they've encountered some people that have had difficulties with it and have actually had a hard time recovering their soil after using it. So I don't think it's maybe for all soil types. It probably works in some places. Um, and this is not a system that disregards soil science. It, it integrates and depends on soil science. Um, so often there's typical production problems in market farming or, or other agriculture. Um, these are just some of them. Retention of water in the soil, um, which is the amount of water, the total amount of water you need. Um, often it evaporates or it's not retained in the soil through runoff of some means. Um, we often have weed pressure. I don't think anybody's escaped weed pressure completely. Uh, there's been a loss of organic content in the soil, either to start with or through misuse. So a condition um, called poor topsoil. Um, another problem is the amount of space needed to support the scope of a program. So how much acreage do you need to do what you're trying to do? And I, this, this can address that a little bit. Plant health problems, pest problems, soil biology problems, soil texture quality problems. These are all things that can be addressed by this system. And then there's other problems too um, that we touched on just, just a little bit, but at one time, the topsoils in the US had a six to 10% soil organic matter content. So back in the pioneer days when they were first settling the land, through years of, of the prairie soils, you know, laying down its crop from one year and it naturally composting, and then the next year, the same over and over and over through the years, the soils had a very good, healthy topsoil layer that was bioactive and had 
six to ten percent organic soil matter, soil organic matter. Nowadays, after um, depending on the parts of the country, but at least a century, in some cases close to two centuries of um, agriculture, it's been depleted down to one to three percent organic matter, which is not good um, because plants depend on that organic matter in the soil. Worldwide in the last century, roughly two-thirds of the soil carbon or the organic matter has been depleted in agricultural soils. Tillage tends to deplete the carbon and the nitrogen in the soil, and, and I, we don't have time here to get into the science, but that's something you can study about. Too much oxygen um, releases that nitrogen and other nutrients too quickly, and then it's gone. And so repeated tilling can bring that about. Topsoil loss due to erosion is increased by tillage. Um, I grew up in Iowa, like I said, and when I was young, it was before the days of, of some tillage reform. And I remember my grandfather used a, a moldboard plow. That was, you know, that's been used for years and years. And there's probably still a, a, a space and time to use it once in a while. But back then, the, the, all the fields would get moldboard plowed and then winter would come. And in winter in Iowa, it's very snowy and it's the plains, so it's windy. And the snow scours all of that dirt and deposits it in snow drifts along fence lines and road, road ditches. And in the spring, there's a layer of topsoil in that ditch. And over time, those ditches fill up with dirt and they have to come and scoop them out so they continue to drain. Um, so, so erosion, whether it's wind, snow, water, whatever, is heavy under certain tillage conditions. Now, they've, they've created better systems to till that leave more stubble on top and, and such, but there's still, at some level, a loss due to erosion. Tillage decreases the plant available water content in the soil. Um, part of that is because the organic matter breaks down more quickly when you till and it doesn't stay in the soil and um, it doesn't retain that water. The organic matter primarily is what retains the water in the soil. Um, I would invite you to look at some of the research that Rodale Institute has done with, with tillage systems and the organic matter retaining water and it's pretty interesting. Tillage also is a catastrophic event to soil microorganism colonies that the plants depend on symbiotically. Um, and, and again, we don't have time today for all the science, but plants put exudates into the soil that feed the microorganisms in the soil. And in return, they gain breakdown of nutrients from those microorganisms and, and some um, soil predator control, um, etc. So so the plants depend on the fungi and the bacteria that are in the soil. If you till, it tears it all up and they almost have to start over from scratch. And in some cases I've heard, um, and, and again, you guys, I'm not an expert. I'm trying to reiterate things I've learned. Um, in some cases, it can take up to a year for that soil biology to recover again. And so if you can imagine tilling maybe two or three times a year, depending on what you're doing, you never get that benefit of that soil biology. So the question is, are, are we talking just about rototilling or other types of tilling? So um, to be fair, some types of tilling are less catastrophic than others. Rototilling is a very bad one, not just for the soil biology, but because it can create a hard pan layer. And if you, if you guys haven't heard about that in a nutshell, the blades on a rototiller are shaped in an L shape. And as they go around, they, they push on the, the bottom swing of where, where their path goes. And so you get a layer at the base of your tillage that's, that's thick and hard. So, so uh, um, a non-mechanized plow of some kind is better because usually you get more of a lifting instead of a, a pushing action. And it, it doesn't pulverize as much to answer Brian's question. Right, and that's very correct. Yeah, back in, in Ellen White's day when she made some of the comments, it, it was not the catastrophic rototilling that we have today. And that's a good point. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, it was more than likely a moldboard plow because that's what was used heavily then. Um, you know, nowadays we have chisel plows and things that will, will open the soil without turning it completely inverted. Um, so, so just educate yourself on the type of plow and what it does, how it works. Um, and that's, that's part of your decision-making process, I believe.
So um, in looking at this, all these problems, there's four principles that can promote soil health. And the first one is disturb the soil layer, layers as little as possible. And again, that, that maintains that soil biology and, and the, the colonies that are formed in the soil that are helping the plants. So if you can leave it alone, it keeps doing what it's supposed to do. You want to grow as many different plants as practical. Different plants provide different system benefits. And I just invite you to take a look at how, how God created the natural systems. There's not, you don't look at the forest and see all one type of tree. You don't look at a grassland and have all one species of, of grass. It's mixed, it's blended. God's designed it so that there's a variety everywhere you look. And those things work together. He designed them to work together. Um, in the garden, there's, and we can talk about this in a little bit too, but there's different system benefits such as, um, you know, some plants will add different exudates or different nutrients into the soil than others. Some attract different insects or repel different insects than others. And so there's different benefits you can get from blending as many different types of plants as possible. The third one, keep living plants in the soil as often as possible. And that keeps the photosynthesis happening and the soil biology active and you keep feeding the soil. So, um, and there's probably a, a time and place for leaving something fallow, but most of the time, if you can keep that process going, you keep the process healthy. The fourth one, keep the soil covered all of the time. And this keeps the soil life healthy and active and the weeds down. So this is kind of on the tail of the previous one if you don't, if you're not able um, through, through your system to have plants on it all the time, cover it with something else. Um, I think the Dysingers touched on um, stale seed bed mechanisms and, and covering with a silage tarp. You can also use uh, woven landscape fabric. That's a, a, a nice one. What that does that's a little bit better than, than a sheet plastic is it allows the soil to breathe you get some oxygen transfer and, and, and carbon dioxide transfer. I, I use both um, at our garden, and I think, I think there's a time and place for each. You just have to make sure you understand the system and, and make sure you understand pros and cons and use it wisely. This system heavily relies on transplants versus direct seed, and there's some reasons for that. Um, with transplanting all of your plants, when they're four weeks old or, or slightly older, it depends on the crop, you, have, um, a, you could, could have a faster transition from crop to crop. So when you take your old crop out and you put a new crop in, you get a faster transition if you don't have to wait um, and prepare your seed bed, you know, adding anything to it and then waiting for perhaps a, uh, a weed growth period and then killing that and then seeding. Um, if you can put big plants in immediately, you get a faster turnaround. So that equals more crops per year. Can you see where that's going, perhaps? A little more profitability, maybe? The, the next thing is there's less time, um, when, the, when the plants are in the garden less time, less time in the garden minimizes the availability to pests. So if they're not there for, for quite so long, the pests aren't, aren't going to have access to them for quite so long. More predictable crop coverage. Have, have any of you ever seeded some beds and then had maybe 75% emergence and you've been dismayed because now you have holes and if you replant, there's gonna be some, some more time for germination and it's never gonna quite align. It's just frustrating, right? Well, if you plant plants, you, you have a much higher degree of, of the, the, the chance that your entire bed's going to be full the way you intended it. Um, larger plants outcompete weeds. So imagine, um, imagine a little seedling that you planted along with rugged weeds right next to it that in many cases choke out the, the, the seed you planted. And we have parables that Jesus told us about that very thing. Imagine planting that plant in a bigger stage and then competing with that little weed. It's going to have a lot better chance. And so that's one of the, the primary we, reasons that we use 
um, transplants when possible, and in this system, almost exclusively. There's also less water needed for establishing. So um, if you're planting seeds, usually you need the entire seed bed to be moist. In this system, you can, you can use a drip line and orient the plants along the drip line and you're not going to need as much water. In addition, there's less evaporation. The other, the other neat thing about this, and here's some pictures from our farm, and um, my disclaimer is this, is this is our winter crop. I should have gotten pictures earlier in the season when we had better crops there. And we actually had a problem with our fence and some deer got in and they, they took out some of the plants here. And so if you see a little spottiness, it's because I didn't take pictures at the right time. Um, so so this, is, this is a good representation. Um, and I'll try and describe for, for Audioverse here as well. But um, you can use this system either with a raised bed or a flat bed, whatever works for whatever you're growing or, or your soil type. This area that, that we grew on, um, that we have to grow on at Milo, is very heavy soil, very clay. Um, this Iowa boy would say it's not suitable for growing produce, <laughs> but it's growing produce. And that is thanks in, in a large degree to this system. So we formed beds out of the dirt that was in place. And um, we, we've, th this system uses uh, layers of compost at each crop rotation. And so you put a layer of compost on top. And over time, you build the soil below because, um, and, and I'll show you here in a little bit, you leave the roots in the soil after each crop. And um, layer upon layer, as, as it goes on with each, each compost layer and crop transition, your soil below becomes very rich. And so, in essence, you can farm on top of clay. Um, and that's not exactly true because the, more and more the, 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 slay will, the, the clay will disappear as the roots enrich that soil. Um, but this is, this is showing the crop interplanting. And so we'll, we'll talk about this in a second. Um, on the next page, but these are brassicas. I think um, they're, uh, I can't remember which variety, but they're cabbage, as you see here and here as well. This picture and this picture are intercropped with lettuce, and this one is intercropped with kohlrabi. So the idea is that initially you have some space as you're waiting for large plants to get bigger, because you have to space them based on their adult size. But in the meantime, you have open space that weeds are going to take advantage of. And if you can cover that, you've, you've helped choke some weeds out, you've helped soil biology keep functioning, and you've gotten a second crop where in that space you would have only gotten one crop before. So intercropping benefits, just to go over it again, the soil is covered more of the time, there's more photosynthesizing, and that equals more active biology and available nutrients for your crops, for your plants. Short period crops help fill canopy until long period crops fill out. So again, with the canopy choking the young weeds out, you have less weed pressure, which means less weeding, which might mean a little more time to get things accomplished or free time. You also can do multiple crops on less space so that equals more production volume, and that might equal more income potential. So now, on that one bed, instead of, um, instead of one crop, you've gotten two. And over the course of the season, instead of maybe two to three, you get um, four to six or more, maybe up to eight. Depends on your season. You need less space. <coughs> So there's less infrastructure needed. So you know, if, you're, if you're growing two crops in the space of one, you only need one set of irrigation instead of two sets of irrigation. Possible companion plant benefits. If you guys have ever looked into companion plantings, there's huge benefits to utilizing certain plants to drive away other um, potentially problematic insects or to bring in predator insects or pollinator insects. Um, the, the companion planting is a nice study. You should look into it sometime. So that equals less pest pressure or perhaps nitrogen fixing. Maybe you could plant a legume next to a, a nitrogen user and that would help too. 
Here's a, a, a bigger view of our beds at Milo there at, at our farm. And again, we have some, like here's some cabbage missing from the, the system because the deer got it. But you can kind of get an idea for what's going on. And we, we shoot for, and we'll have a slide about this in a little bit, but we shoot for about a 30 inch wide bed, which is kind of a standard. I think you guys may have heard of that before. Um, I think Coleman is the one that that has been pioneered by and it's been kind of adopted by a lot of market gardeners. And um, in the pathways, we use uh, sawdust as a mulch to keep the weeds down. And I'm not going to tell you that that's the best mulch to use, but we heat our school with sawdust. We have a sawdust boiler. And so we have lots of sawdust for free, so to speak. And so that's what we use. And, and when we're not incorporating it into the soil, we don't really see the nitrogen loss. And, and it's also in the pathway and not on the bed. And so, so we get away with it with good functionality. It doesn't seem to, to draw too much nitrogen from the crops. Um, and, it, and it does a great job at keeping the weeds down. It, it's acidic enough that they don't like it too much. Anyway, next slide. Here's another view of one of our beds. Um, since you're looking at the picture here, I'll just touch on one thing. We'll talk about it again here maybe a little bit, in a little bit. But the spacing between the beds, all you need is enough space to function with, with what you're doing. We like to be able to get a wheelbarrow down the pathway. And so we leave about 16 inches or so. It, it's just enough to get a wheelbarrow down the bed and set it down without it destroying the bed. And it seems to be enough to, to stand sideways and work over the bed or anything like that that you might need to do. And so, so you can change the frequency of your beds based on your needs, but these equal out to four feet, nine inches. It's kind of an odd number, but I actually cheated and I stole that number from where I learned this. And we'll talk about that the source of this in a little bit. So James just asked the question, are these permanent beds? The answer is yes, these are permanent beds. And we started this in the worst areas of our garden that, that we couldn't till if we, if we wanted to because, because we tried and it didn't work, right? It, it was like rocks. The, the clay was so heavy, you know, in, in the summertime it was, it was rocks and in the wintertime it's just soup. So, so what this allows us to do at our school is to utilize it year round instead of leaving it in the wet, wet winter months that we experience. Um, and so, so we, can, we can garden in the winter, whereas we just have to leave it alone otherwise. Right, the question is um, in the picture, there's lines, two lines going down each bed. And so that is in fact drip line. Um, I, we utilize both drip tape and poly drip line at, at our farm. And I, I think they both have their place. On these permanent beds, I use poly because it's more permanent as well. And it's a little more rigid and you can set it to the side while you're dealing with, with crop transition and then put it back and then replant it. It's, it's pretty forgiving and it lasts like 10 years. The other neat thing about it is you can use the emitters on the pipe for your spacing. You don't have to use a tape measure or a stick to, to gauge. If, if you're savvy, you can just look for the emitters and space your plants accordingly makes it fast. The second part of the question is what um, is the advantage to two lines? Uh, just uniform coverage on a wider bed. If you, had a, if you had one single row, one drip line would be enough, but when you plant three or four or five small rows in, in a 30 inch wide bed, two lines help cover better with no dry spots. So those pictures you saw were over here where we had gotten um, more proactive and gotten our mulch between in the pathways better. This is where we haven't renewed the sawdust mulch between the pathways and you can see some weed pressure starting to form. Um, but, but keep this in mind as we look at the next picture because this, this is not much weed pressure and that's easy to deal with with a stirrup hoe. Um, and hopefully you guys know what a stirrup hoe is but it's, it's uh, it's a, a kind of a D-shaped loop of sharp metal with a handle, and it's one of the best hoes you can get. It works really well. It shears the plant off right below the crown if you use it wisely. Um, so, so a little bit of weed pressure that we could have nipped in the bud earlier if we'd, if we'd gotten to it, but the next one shows an area where we tilled. So we tilled this in the fall. I want to say it was in October. And this is what it looks like now. I took this right before we came up to the conference. 
And, and you know, we could have flame weeded it if we had a flame weeder, which we don't yet. Um, we're going to remedy that right away. Hopefully, Farmer's Friend can help us. Um, but we could have flame weeded this, and it would look a lot better. We could have also put a tarp on it, and it would look a lot better right now. But this is what happens in, in our climate in the winter in a tillage system. And then that's so wet, I, you can't till that if you wanted to right now because you'd get your tractor stuck. So, or, or your BCS or whatever you have, it wouldn't work very well at all. And so um, this, is, this is one of the reasons we've moved away from the tillage system in our, in our garden. This is just another shot of, of an area that we have tilled that, that is better soil um, for tilling. It, it's more loamy. And we have it covered right now with silage tarps. And that's a great system uh, to make a stale seed bed for the springtime. This also keeps excess moisture off, and so our thought is that we'll be able to, this is the first year we've implemented it, but our thought is we'll be able to get into the field sooner to plant in the spring, which means earlier crops, which means we might have some things available at farmer's market before others do. Good question. The, the, the question is how long do you leave the silage tarps on for a stale seed bed? And that depends on the time of year. So in the summer months, it happens really fast because it heats. It, your goal is to either kill weeds or, um, or to keep weeds from coming. Usually it's to, to kill weeds, to get them to germinate and then kill them. Right now in the wintertime, it's cooler and you don't get the heating effect from the sun, so it takes a little bit longer because you're relying on blocking the light from the sun. And that's a term called occultation. Sounds a little bit bad, but it just means <laughs> shutting the light out. Um, so, so probably in the range of 10 weeks, perhaps, in the wintertime, depending on your climate. <clears throat> so crop-to-crop crop turnaround with this system. You can get three to eight crops per year in one bed as opposed to one to three, and we kind of mentioned that already. You get same-day crop out to crop in, depending on the size, maybe one hour per bed. Um, so one person could probably take out the old crop, prepare and plant the new crop in one hour, usually. And we'll look at how that happens here in a minute. The roots of the previous crop always stay in the soil to feed the next crop. And it adds soil organic matter, and it retains the mycorrhizal colonizations that are there and the bacteria that are there. So um, if you pull the roots out, you're taking out the colonized mycorrhizal with it. You're taking out that organic matter that could stay there. So what, you, what we do is we clip the plant at just below the crown at just subsoil level, and then we leave the roots there. And you kind of have to be careful. Some, some crops will come back if you don't cut them a little bit deeper. So we use pairs of loppers that are dedicated to using in the dirt, which you would not normally want to use your loppers for. It, I was always taught that's, that's not okay because it makes them dull, but in this case, if you reserve some just for that, it works quite well. So how do you do it? Um, we just said you clip the crop below the crown with loppers. You re the next step after you do that, so, so that's removing the previous crop. You clip it all off. Um, after that, if there's any weeds present, that's when you take those weeds out. Now, if they're a weed that you can cut off and leave the root, like amaranth or lamb's quarters or something like that, then, then you can do that and gain some of the same benefits as the crop roots. But if it's a, you know, a grass, you're probably better off to take it out. If it, if it will propagate itself below the soil level, you need to pull it out. Um, but usually in this system, there's not very many, so it's usually not, not too large a part of the system. The next step is you lay aside the drip lines. So the drip lines in the pictures you saw were laying right down the, the, the bed. So you need those out of the way to do what you're going to do. So you take the drip lines and you, you part the waters and set them on either side out of your way so you can walk. The next step, if the bed needs any reshaping, you might want to reshape the bed then. Um, they don't have to look perfect. If, if they're raised a little bit and, and a little bit strangely shaped, they're, they're going to grow just fine. So depending on, on how much of a perfectionist you are, you may or may not feel like that's necessary. Then you would add amendments based on a good soil test, only as needed. And, and with this system, there's, 
there's a lot of food for the plant going back in all the time, and so you may not need to add amendments at each crop rotation, but, but your soil tests are gonna tell you a lot more about what's necessary and, and some good advice. Um, and, and again, I, I mentioned Whitmar McConnell. If you, if you work with him, make sure you tell him what system you're using and, and how deep you're perhaps incorporating this. Um, and and we'll, we'll touch on that in just a second here. Um, because the, the amendments that are recommended are dependent on how deep they're getting put in the soil and how that's being incorporated. Good question. When you take a soil test, um, they, they want to know the square footage, um, the, the area that you're planting. Um, and so the question is, would you include the walkways? And, and the answer is no. So you have to roughly figure the width and the length of the bed itself because you're only applying the amendment to the bed and not the pathways because we have permanent beds, correct? Yes. So you add the amendments. The next step is you broad fork, often and deep. So um, that's where that comes in. If you guys haven't used a broad fork before, I'll just describe it briefly. It's a, it's, it's a, a wide fork, usually um, from like one foot to 30 inches wide. And you would want a 30 inch wide one for, for your 30 inch wide bed usually and it has a handle at either end of it, so it's two handles, and you, you step it into your bed, and then you pull the handles back, so it lifts the soil a little bit with the tines of the fork. And then you stand it up, and you pull it out, and you move back six inches, and you step it in, and you do the same thing. You lean the handles down, and it lifts the soil. And so what you're doing is you're, you're opening the soil for roots to go through. You're adding a little bit of oxygenation down in there to help the soil life, but you're not turning the soil, which is important. Um, and, and if you're wondering where to get some, um, Johnny's sells an excellent one. That's what we use. Um, and, and then, you know, we, we've discussed um, where some of this has started. Elliot Coleman uses it heavily, if you've heard of, of Elliot Coleman. Um, so it, it's, it's something that's out there that's well used, that's well known. After you broad fork, uh, well, during the process of broad forking, your amendments that you put on will kind of filter into some of those cracks. That's the reason for putting them on before broad forking. You want them to be able to, to go into the soil a little bit, and that helps with incorporation. The next step is add a, good, a layer of good quality and known content compost. Um, and I'm saying this a little bit tongue in cheek because ours isn't the best, but we make it ourselves with what we have. But you want to add, and, and this is actually, I wrote on here one half inch to an inch and a half. Um, you can adjust that based on what you're experiencing and, and what your soil is like. It's probably actually a quarter of an inch to, in our case, we've added two inches sometimes, but, but usually that's too much. Um, our compost happens to be very high in sawdust. We have an equestrian program at the school, and so we, we compost all of the horse stall bedding with the manure and um, all of the scraps from our kitchen, from our cafeteria. So they, we have barrels in the cafeteria that all of the, the preparation scraps go into and um, then maintenance puts raked leaves and grass clippings in our pile um, along with that, that sawdust. And, and we've produced, I think probably on average, and we'll have a picture of it here in a little bit, maybe, um, I'm not probably estimating very well, but maybe 40 to 60 yards a season of compost. So, so that, that helps us a lot. We don't have to buy it. Um, but anyway, I would recommend you use better known content compost. And if you're making your own, get it analyzed so you know what's in it, so you know what other amendments need to go in, in that. And you can do that along with your soil test and your soil uh, recommendations. So after your compost is on in a nice even layer, you lay your drip, light, drip lines back into position and then you plant your transplants and water them in. And again, I, just like I talked a little bit before about, you can use those drip lines to space your plants so you don't need a, a cumbersome tape measure out there. So, so the question is, would you want to leave some plants in while you're broad forking so you have an ongoing system? And I, I would say I have not experimented with that. There's some, possibly some potential there, but it would be 
somewhat difficult to broad fork with plants in place and you may damage their roots. And so um, if it, the, the beauty of this system is you can go from living plants to living plants same day. And so there's very little window where you have a drop in that life happening in the soil. So, so you usually want to time it when there's no plants in the bed really is the best way. Yeah, good question. So uh, where this system came from is from a, a couple who farms in Napa Valley. Their names are Paul and Elizabeth Kaiser. And they developed this actually when they were in Sub-Sahara Africa in the Peace Corps. Um, it worked over there. They came back, they decided to start farming and decided to, to try it here and it works here. They've had people try it in all different zones in North America and it seems to just work most places really well. Um, this is a video clip I pulled from one of their videos that uh, you guys can go and check out on YouTube and it just gives you a good idea on how this process works. Now understand they sped it up but this whole process is, is a fairly short process. I think um, they say that without the video being sped up, it only takes about 45 minutes for this to happen. Now they have four beds here and I think they say they have four employees, either three or four employees working on it. So here they're taking the crops out with the loppers and next they move the drip lines out of the way and then they add some amendments and then they add compost with wheelbarrows and shovels. They, the, this, this tractor they have only to facilitate bringing compost closer to the beds. They took a little break <laughs> and they're transplanting. And you can see they just, they just very rudimentally, rudimentary, I'm not saying that right, forgive me, but they, they just get the plants in simply. It, it's not complicated. They, um, <laughs> and they finished, a little hurrah. So that's a good question, thank you James. Um, they have decided after, I, I'm trying to remember how many years now, I think they've been farming this farm this way for upwards to 10 years. Am I right, Brian? Do you know? Yes. It's close to a decade. Um, and they have, have such high soil quality, they've stopped broad forking. Now we know we need to plow often and deep so maybe we want to keep broad forking regardless, but they have decided to stop. Um, and they can, they can insert a soil probe four feet into the ground by hand with no effort. And if you, if you hold their soil, the, 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 the term that's been coined a lot is you want chocolate cake soil and that's what they have. It's really lofty, full of organic matter, moist, rich soil. It's, and, and you can just stick your hand down into the soil. You know, in, in a lot of places, like at our garden, if we tried doing that before using this, you wouldn't even get your fingernail in. So the question was, um, how do you get started, basically? How do, you, how do you initiate this? And, you know, some people say, lay cardboard down and do, on top of, do what you want on top of that. Um, you know, peel the sod and try it, or there's various things. But Paul and Elizabeth recommend just till, just, just till and get it started, and then you'll reap the benefits later because the work to get there in the other methods is too much. Um, and you can build your beds with a machine, uh, like a, a, a BCS tractor with a, a rotary plow, I think is the name. Um, we fabricated a little disc hiller out of parts we had laying around <coughs> that we used with our tractor. Um, you can use a shovel. Some of them, we, we did that. We, we have students and we sh shoveled them into, into beds with the students. So it doesn't have to be complicated. So, so yeah, just get your beds built and then you reap the consequences in the successive years. Benefits, I'm, I'm sorry, not consequences. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Words are important, aren't they? Um, so compost, we talked about the use of compost in this system. That's one of the pivotal things you need in this system. You can make your own with all your crop stubble. So everything you pull out after each crop rotation goes into the, the compost pile. Um, your weeds. Your tree leaves, grass clippings if, if you don't treat your grass with chemicals, um, recycled food waste, and when you use it, make sure it's finished. Learn, about, learn a little bit about compost. You don't want half-baked compost. You want finished compost. And get your compost tested so you know what's in it and, and you use that in your decision-making process. 
um, about how, how thick of a layer you use. Um, they, the, the Kaisers have been told time after time, you can't, you can't use that much compost, you'll destroy your soil because of, of overloading. Um, and they haven't had that happen. They've tested, they've tested, they've tested, and, and they haven't had that consequences because they're not incorporating it. They're leaving it on the surface, and, and the, it goes slowly into the soil. And they've, they've also tested, they have several runoff ponds on their property. They've tested for nitrates, and there's almost none. The, the water flowing into their property is far higher in nitrates than the water leaving their property. And that's a, another good point. Brian said the high production of growth is keeping the balance. So it, the plants are using what's there, and it's not allowing that runoff to happen, in addition to the organic matter holding it. So, so the question is, do you really want weeds in your compost? I would say it depends on the weeds, yeah, and it depends on the age of the weeds. Seeds, you, know, you don't want seeds in your compost. So if you have young weeds, if you get them out at the right time, they can go in. If they're bigger than that, maybe give them to your chickens or something, but don't put them in your compost. So um, the question is, how long does it take to compost with our, our sawdust in, in our compost? Um, and I would say it varies depending on how much each batch had in it. We, we don't really have this down to an exact science. We're, um, we're doing the best we can with what we have. And so it takes, oh, from four to six months anyway, um, usually depending on when we started and when we actually end up using it, it can sit there for up to a year. Um, it just depends on, on our need and how quickly we, we rotate around. But, but you want to make sure that it's, you, you, it doesn't, you, it shouldn't look like sawdust. It should look like compost when it's finished. Finished is, is well degraded, well aged, well um, broken down. Um, we talked about getting it tested and use nearby resources. Um, I know in, here in the Willamette Valley, you can get mint compost from the mint farmers and you can get it pretty cheap. Um, maybe you can uh, compost some alfalfa or something like that. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of things. Just use what's in your area. The benefits to this, soil biology is maintained and that equals plant health is maintained. It significantly decreases water loss and the water needed due to increased retention. In practice, the soil organic matter is increased to eight to 11%. Um, and they haven't, the Kaisers haven't found any extra rewards for going over 11%. It's rich soil at 11%. I think parts of theirs tested at 14%, but they said there was no added value to, to necessarily striving to go higher. Every crop becomes a cover crop and is directly profitable. So you don't have to have times where there's just a, an unsaleable cover crop because you have it covered all the time and you're selling those crops. Weed pressure is significantly decreased due to not exposing new seeds and more canopy. Labor inputs become primarily crop turnover and planting and harvesting because there's very little weeding. I know they have four year-round employees and they said that their employees weed about 20 hours a year, I think is what they said. That got my attention. The potential profit in this practice is upwards, may, may, theirs is over $100,000 per acre and they've proven that. However, their location probably adds to that possibility because they're in Napa Valley. They sell primarily to their CSA members and farmers market and they make that much money doing that. This, this is a system where you can create nutrient density, you know, working with your, your soil tests um, and, and maybe doing some bricks testing or something, you can get nutrient dense vegetables very well with the system. It's non-mechanized. Anyone, anywhere can use this. It's not dependent on fuel or expensive machinery or machinery breakdowns. This works just as good here as it does in a third world country in a mission setting. And that's what I've dis discussed to my students is if you wanna be missionaries and, and you wanna be mission farmers, this is something that's very applicable anywhere you go. And, and you know, as we get farther in Earth's history, we may not have access to diesel fuel or gasoline or parts for our machines. Mm -hmm. So this is easily attainable, sustainable without mechanization. It will usually produce good results on unideal soil, like rocky soil, clay soil, et cetera, because you, you end up going on top and then you don't have to dig below as much except for broad forking after that. 
Synergistic systems, now that's a big word, so I put the definition up here. Synergistic means relating to the interaction or cooperation of two or more organizations, substances, or other agents to produce a combined effort greater than the sum of their separate effects. And so what do, we, what do the Kaisers use? What have they implemented along with this? They have woody perennial hedgerows throughout their garden. I don't think they have more than 100 feet of open bed area without another woody perennial hedgerow. And that does a few things. It provides habitat for native, or excuse, excuse me, before that. Um, what, what they use are either native plants that are indigenous to, to their area, or you could pick your own indigenous plants, um, or they use fruiting species that can also be sold or utilized as a crop. Um, it provides habitat for foraging predatory in, insect species and bird species and snake species, um, etc. And so the things you want in your garden like these hedgerows. And what, what they've discovered, not the, the Kaisers per se, but what, what um, science has discovered is that predatory insects forage out probably no more than 200 feet from a woody perennial uh, habitat. And so they, they live in the woody perennial and they forage out from there to catch their prey, the bad bugs. And so you're, you're helping eliminate predators this way. And the birds love them. The birds also eat the, the bad insects that are causing you trouble, whether it's caterpillars or beetles or what, whatever it is. Um, and what the Kaisers have discovered is that there's a temperature moderation effect with, with um, hedging sections of beds, they, they're in an area where they get frosts. It's a hollow and, and frosts come through and they've discovered that any plants that are near one of these hedgerows are alleviated, alleviated of frost damage because it, it, it maintains some warmth in that area. The other neat thing is in the middle of summer when it's hot and you're struggling getting your lettuce to grow, if you plant it on, on the east side of a hedgerow, it gets a little afternoon shade from the hot sun and you can grow some lettuce or some spinach whereas it might be a little more difficult without some, some kind of protection. <clears throat> they, they also use pollinator and beneficial insect feeder plantings. And so that could be annuals or small perennials like yarrow and fennel, and the list goes on and on for pollinators. Um, they, they have birdhouses for bluebirds all over their farm. And so they, they've had people come in and, and do counts of the birds and they have a much higher density of birds on their farm than any of the surrounding area. And those birds are, are thriving off of what they have grown for them and, and the insects that are there that they're eating. They have collection ponds that help control some of the runoff. Uh, they have grassy strips that, that also help control erosion and runoff through, throughout. And then um, the other thing you can incorporate into a system like this is ducks for, for pest insect control or goats to eat your grass. You don't need a lawnmower necessarily if you, if you stake a goat in, in a succession. So the nuts and bolts of this, raised bed or not, you decide based on what you're planting. You could do this um, with, with a raised bed very well. That's what we chose because uh, the, the land doesn't drain well where we put ours. Um, you, you could do it flat and, and just maintain your pathway so you have kind of a, a sunken pathway is the coined term. The bed spacing, we talked about that already, 30 inches wide, 4 feet 9 center to center is what they've developed and it works great. I will vouch for that. Your bed length, I would, I would recommend you choosing 75 or 100 feet, specifically because if you use row covers, you can cut them fairly easily in those increments because they come in um, you know, like a 300 foot roll or something like that. So, so pick a standardized length and make them all the same. Um, and I'm telling you that because we have both 75 and 100 and it's a little bit difficult. Some direct seeding is necessary. There's plants you, you can't really transplant. So s there's like four or five crops that you will probably have to direct seed like carrots, for instance. Um, they just work better that way. Spinach is another one that works better. The tools you need aren't very many. A wheelbarrow, a broad fork, shovel, rake, stirrup hoe, harvest knife, long-handled loppers, uh, maybe a few supplies to put your irrigation together, not a lot. Supplies, tool fabric, like for weddings, can be used to keep bugs and birds out, um, and it's pretty cheap. 
just lay it as a floating row cover. Um, actual floating row covers can work. Woven landscape fabric um, you can use for the term, remember we used was occultation, to reset a bed if you get a little extra weed pressure, just cover it up for four weeks and then it's reset, those weeds are dead. Um, drip lines, and you need a, a greenhouse for your starts. You need a greenhouse that's sized enough to accommodate enough starts for your, your production that you need. Um, most transplants are ready in four weeks after you sow them. Pathway mulch treatments, we already talked about sawdust. You can also use straw. You could use probably a variety of things, grass clippings. Um, just make sure it doesn't have weed seeds in it. If you don't have compost available, you can actually do this with woven row covers and some, some torched holes. So if you cover your bed with, with woven landscape fabric, it can work. And I've experimented with that and it's worked pretty well. It's not as good as the compost system, I'll tell you that. So resources. Um, if you haven't heard of it, watch the documentary Symphony of the Soil. It's excellent. It's worth, worth the time and worth the money. Um, this book here is, is a must read, Teeming with Microbes. It's in ordinary layman speak. You can understand it. Um, it tells you about what's going on in your soil so you, so you can make good decisions. Um, Singing Frogs Farm. Paul and Elizabeth have a good website with a lot of information and a lot of links. Um, you can find their lectures on YouTube easily. Um, they have on-farm workshops, which I attended, and it was very useful. Um, we mentioned Whitmar McConnell and soil consulting. Get somebody to interpret for you, somebody who knows what they're doing who has good science. Um, and then find other books like J.M. Fortier's books and Elliot Coleman's books. Their methods aren't too far different from this, really. They don't use the layer of compost on top, but they, they use the broad forking method and, and then you know, they are careful to prepare the, the seed bed and, and their ways are, are good and, and overlapping with this system. Um, is there any questions that you guys have as we're closing? The, the question is, um, this, this lady already has raised beds and is asking if what she has now should be cut off or if, if the plant will be gone by next season. So if you're in a colder climate where you can't really do much in the winter um, and you know that that plant's going to be degraded, it's a small, not very woody plant, maybe you don't have to cut it off, maybe you just leave it. That's totally acceptable. It depends on the crop. Right, so just to reiterate for Audioverse, Brian just mentioned a couple things. Baker Creek has a lot of good resources on their website as well. And um, he mentioned that this system incorporates God's tillage, earthworms, etc. that are, you know, even the roots of the plants. You, you've heard of tillage radishes. Roots can be used as a form of, of tillage. And so if you're, even though you're not using mechanization to, to plow, you're using these natural systems to, in effect, plow the soil. That's what it's all about. I prefer north to south because I, I feel like you get a lot of light coverage on your row as the, as the sun moves around. Um, what the Kaisers have found is they just do what works. Um, so they, these beds are north to south, these beds are east to west, and, and this is the, the most sloping part of their land. But what they discovered was when they had this section, north and south, uh, uh, crosswise to the slope, they had lakes in each path and they couldn't function anymore. And, and they weren't getting much runoff, which was good, but they couldn't, they couldn't farm, they couldn't deal with it. So they turned their beds with the slope, which you normally would never do, and then they use straw to mitigate the runoff. And as long as they're very forward thinking about it, they don't have erosion, they're careful. The question is, do we use any cover crops in this rotation? You could perhaps, if it, if it seemed to fit what you were doing, but you, you almost never would need to um, let, let me back up. The, we talked about having the infill with the interplanting all the time, so your crops are your cover crops. However, in a colder climate, you may want to use a cover crop because you might not be able to have some of these crops covering all of your beds all winter long, and so then you, you might plant a hardier crop as a cover crop that will keep that system going in the wintertime. So you, you definitely could, it depends on your climate. The question is what type of irrigation was in the pictures, the drip, drip tubing as opposed to drip tape. It, it functions, at least what I use, and I believe what the Kaisers use, is, is very similar to drip tape. You have to have 
uh, a pressure reducer before the drip lines. Otherwise, they'll blow out or, or not emit at a proper rate. It's, it's polytubing with built-in emitters. Where, the question is, where do you get it? At an irrigation supply, I think you could order it through Rainflow or other online suppliers. Um, I don't have a handout, I'm sorry, but um, watch for Audioverse for the audio and then watch the AdAgger website for the slides. Um, I would encourage you to go to Singing Frogs Farm's website and to YouTube and watch Paul and Elizabeth Kaiser's videos. Where did I get this, this uh, book from is the question. The book is Teeming with Microbes, Amazon. Okay, let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, thank you again for this opportunity to discuss things of nature, things um, that you've created as natural mechanisms that, that we can learn about and benefit from. Lord, thank you so much for the lessons that we can learn in, in caring for the soil and the plants that will benefit our health. Bless us this afternoon. Continue to um, be with us here at, at, at the AdAgra conference. And I just pray, Lord, that you will help all of us all the time to draw closer to you and look forward to your coming in your name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.